16 minutes after nine, it looks like uh, the guys in the sports field are just giving us uh, all sorts of bursts of inspiration. Um, the Bafana Bafana seem to have gone on to the next round of the tournament. They have qualified to go to the next round of the tournament. Yes, we didn't win the game. It has been a draw against Tunisia, but we live to fight another day. And it looks like the sports people are leading the way. It started off with the Springboks. Uh, Banyana Banyana, uh, Trikas Duplessis won the UFC middleweight championship. Uh, and now we hear that perhaps we have a real fighting chance uh, in the AFCON Cup of Nations. Uh, yes, it has been a draw between ourselves and Tunisia. But hey, man, hope still lives. I'm really looking forward to more of this wonderful stuff that we're drinking these days. <laughs> Professor um, Dion Foster is my guest. He is head of uh, the Systematic Theology and Ecclesiology at Stellenbosch University. Prof, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate your time. Aubrey, thanks for having me on this evening. What a fascinating topic. Is, uh, is, isn't it, Prof? I mean, I, I, had to, <laughs> I had to sort of squeeze the, the, the very logical, rational thinking uh, producers of this show uh, to, to agree to having conversations about giants. Before we even start that conversation, Prof, Department of Systematic Theology and Ecclesiology, what, what, what does that mean? Yes, so systematic theology is the uh, philosophical study of belief. So it tries to understand what people believe and why they believe it and how they believe it and the implications of those beliefs. And ecclesiology comes from the Greek word ekklesia, uh, which means community. And uh, traditionally, that's been the, the word which is used to speak of the church. So ecclesiology studies uh, the history and uh, the formation of, of different churches and uh, their practices and beliefs throughout history. So it's really a, an understanding or an to under, attempt to understand people's worldviews, what inspires them, what is the logic that's embedded in that worldview, or what irrationality and prejudices there might be in there, yeah? Exactly, exactly. And, and of course, that's, that's where our colleagues who are often called uh, church historians or religious ex- historians uh, do such a fascinating job because they, you know, w- when they look back on history, they can often unearth these sort of irrational, illogical uh, problematic, but sometimes also, as you were saying, just with the sport, uh, inspiring, hope-giving, meaning-making uh, beliefs and practices that uh, that sustain people and sometimes uh, also wound them. Prof, talk to me about giants. I related, yes. this, I, I related <laughs> the story of how, as a child, I would sit mesmerized as my grandmother uh, would tell stories of giants in distant times. Um, uh, we would, she'd call them Amazimzim or uh, in the Sepedi language, Bakhema. Uh, and some people have even suggested that the word Bakhema is the original word that was used on the African continent for what is now known as Egypt. And I see uh, an interesting sort of phonetic relationship with Kemet and 
what we here call Bakhem, and a lot of people have suggested that that was a, a, a reference to the great giants of that part of the world. And we see even today how the people of Sudan, the beautiful Nubian, dark-skinned, tall giants of uh, Sudan still uh, remain a reality, a physical, scientific existential reality of a, an existence of a giant peoples we read about the nephilim in the bible we read about people such as goliath in the bible we've we are told that he had brothers and sisters and they too were giants talk to me about giants did they exist do they exist what are giants yeah, so um, Aubrey, let me say, I mean, I was, I was listening to you just uh, b- before I came on air speaking of that. And of course, you know, here in, in Africa in particular, we have this incredibly rich uh, heritage of folklore and mythology that people had. I'm thinking specifically about the uh, Setswana, you know, the Bato Bamudimo, the people yes. who live with, with Mudimo. And, and these are all ways in which people tried to make sense of things that were extraordinary, people that were extraordinary, experiences that were extraordinary. And um, if, if I was to think about it in a, in a sort of a, a comparable way, I'd say that perhaps, uh, you know, what we see in the Marvel movies yes. is our way, our contemporary way of, of making sense of, of the extraordinary. So, you know, in, in a, in a different age, um, people would have, would have spoken of extraordinary abilities and gifts in terms of, of size and strength and, and these sort of very visible traits. Today, of course, we, we make sense of them because we have these, you know, very different ways of being in the world through perhaps, you know, special gifts like speed or the ability to walk through walls or, you know, change your, your size to be an end man or an yep. end woman. Yep. So there's a sense in which, Aubrey, I mean, do they exist? Certainly for many people in many cultures, they, they were very, very important. But it's, it's probably, you know, it's unlikely biologically, uh, historically. We've certainly never found, uh, as far as I'm aware, uh, you know, the skeletal remains, for example, of, of, of giant people. Um, you know, generally, you know, most Homo sapiens have, have tended to fit into the kind of ranges of humanity that we are accustomed to. So probably what we are talking about here is something which is more metaphorical mm. than it is physical. Could it be? And again, allow me, Prof, to, to, to just swing out there right let me just go out there you know we we we, the ubiquity the the presence of this idea of giants in all of the cultures which does not suggest metaphorical sort of uh reasoning but speaks of literal giants yes i would accept that later on folklore and and, and, and mythology perhaps took on other dimensions of, of, of greatness and, and, and bigness, right? Um, it became maybe even symbolical. But in the stories of the various peoples of the world, there's no suggestion of it being met- metaphorical. Quite frankly, they speak of these as being very, very literal. In fact, in fact, in, in fact, in fact, I have been told that just here in uh, 
South Africa, in uh, the Mpumalanga province, there are places where there are what seems to be footprints on on rock that are indicative of people or creatures that seem to be humanoid because of the structure and the shape of the feet, fingers that are of giants. Is there any truth to that, um, of the existence of that? And I've also even heard that some have argued that they found skeletal um, uh, evidence of giants. The idea of a Nephilim race uh, yeah. that we hear about in the Bible, in, in, in stories that talk of Enoch. Um, are those also symbolical uh, or are they literal? Yeah, so, okay, so let's, let's quickly see if we can dissect, uh, that, that question into two things. So the first one, you know, the question about, uh, things such as, as footprints and handprints. Um, of course, there can be many explanations for an oversized footprint or, or handprint. Um, many of our, our Muslim sisters and brothers will know, for example, in the Topkapi uh, Palace in uh, in Istanbul, um, there is uh, supposedly uh, uh, an imprint of the f- the footprint of of, of the Holy Prophet uh, Muhammad, which is a, a really I've seen it myself. It's a very large uh, footprint. But we know that, for example, you know, in in descriptions of of the Holy Prophet, that you know he wasn't told to be an, a, a person of of you know extraordinary physical stature yeah uh, moral stature certainly religious stature so part of what i think we need to do is we need to recognize aubrey that you know the way in which we think about communication and and certainly the way in which we think about literature today hasn't always been that way mm. so in in many societies uh, we still have it certainly in, in oral traditions in in southern africa you know the writing down of things is not intended to be history or fact in the sense in which western minds uh you know the sort of colonized mind right. wants to think of everything you know it has to be written and measured and weighed you know the 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 recording of of narratives was something sometimes that was intended to evoke uh, an imagination a, a kind of spirituality a, a connection to something that was greater and divine. Now, certainly the story that you mentioned um, from from the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, uh, Genesis chapter 6, about the Nephilim, is is exactly one of those stories. I mean, I don't think that it was intended to be written as a history in the way in which we would write histories today. Uh, You know, today, if you were to, for example, write a, a biography of a particular person, it has to be accurate to the point of dates and their height and their weight and their geographical location. Mm. In the ancient Near East, when you know Genesis was written, that was not even a concept. You know, it, it was intended to be a text which was written for religious use uh, to to tell the story, which was an oral tradition which had existed already f- probably for for thousands of years before it came to be written. And so the important thing was not to to try and capture what would be uh, materially factual, but something that would evoke a kind of of spiritual uh, reality. Now, of course, there are others that in 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 the Hebrew scriptures which are a little more uh, historical, which people might point to. For example, Goliath, 
in, in the book of Samuel. Yes. Yes. Uh, we remember David goes out to fight uh, Goliath and slays him uh, with a sling. He was thought uh, certainly to have been uh, an, an extraordinarily uh, sized uh, person. But there are many such uh, uh, stories. You know, St. Christopher, for example, uh, in, in, the, uh, in the Christian uh, tradition was believed to be a person of great uh, strength and, and stature. So part of what, what we have to try and separate here is the way in which uh, we think about literature and the recording of tales and stories and the way in, in which ancient or older cultures did that. We have to uh, make a slight distinction there, I think. Are you saying to me that therefore there weren't any literal giants in history? Um, in other times, in other dimensions of time, if some, uh, some people's account of the story is to be believed, um, are you saying to me there is no way that that could be a, a literal possibility? I mean, it's, I, I, it would be, I think it would be, um, it would be a strong claim for me to make an absolutely certain statement that throughout all history yeah. and possibility that didn't exist. But, but I would say on, on the balance of probability and certainly on the sort of careful study of, uh, certainly the texts that I'm familiar with, uh, you know, Christian and Hebrew texts, uh, some Islamic texts, I would say, you know, we, we can't find uh, incontrovertible evidence from those texts that would say that the giants existed. What we can, however, say is that, that people wanted to, to be able to, to give some account for the extraordinary. Yeah. I mean, for example, if we go back to that Genesis six, uh, uh, passage on the Nephilim, you know, when you read it, it's actually quite an interesting passage and, and our, our readers can go and have a, our listeners can go and have a, a read of it. Uh, from Genesis chapter six. I think it's the first six verses, if I'm not mistaken, but it sort of tells the story of how, you know, they thought that, that, you know, maybe some angels had fallen from heaven and they came to earth and they were thrown out of heaven because they were uh, unrighteous. And then they found uh, earthly woman attractive and, you know, mated with them. And from them was born these, uh, these, giants. these giants, the Nephilim, a sort of extraordinarily strong, but somehow accursed race of people. So, so you can probably see what was happening there is, is culturally, they were trying to make sense of, of issues of difference. There were some religious purity elements there that we know are central to the Hebrew faith. Um, and you know, Maybe making some distinctions between, you know, the self and the other, our community and other communities, our beliefs and, and those of others. Give us a call on double one eight eight three zero seven zero two as I speak to uh, Professor Dion Foster uh, of the Department of Systematic Theology and Ecclesiology at the University of Stellenbosch. Uh, the existence of giants, literal or, or simply symbolic. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts. Talk to me and... You know, Prof, I, I host this program almost every week and we go to the weird and the wonderful. Talk to me <laughs> about, talk to me about time. Talk to me about the reliableness of our understanding of the, of the linear occurrence of time. 
I know that it might not necessarily be what we're talking about now. I asked this question because how some people have explained the story is that we live or exist in layers of time where there are multi-layers of this thing called time. And that in other dimensions of time, in other layers of time, there are physical realities that don't necessarily exist in our layer of time. And that's why I think, uh, I forget the, the story as a title, the, I think where the giants come down a big beanstalk. What do they, what do they call, what do they call that? Uh, yes, Jack and the beanstalk. Jack and the big beanstalk. <laughs> yes, yes. And the suggestion yes. there, um, in a, in a very, very, uh, interesting way is that it is, the entrance of our dimension of time from another di- dimension of time, which has different sort of rules of, and in that dimension of time, the, uh, there's no gravity in the same kinds of forces that we have it. And so people can grow. I, have, have you heard those kinds of explanations? Yeah. So, I mean, I think the, the notion of time, you know, is something that deserves a little bit of thinking about, Aubrey. And, 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 uh, I quite like the way you're thinking about it. I can say a few things about this. Um, so the, the first thing that, that I think is interesting for us to think about is that our experience of time, uh, is a constructed reality. So if you think about it, the making of a watch yes. as, as a device, which, which measure, measures uh, the passing of time from one moment to the next is only one way of accounting for time. Yes. Um, and it yes. is, it is a constructed reality. It's, it's trying to show that time moves from point A to point it's B. It's psychological now, time. Yeah. It's exactly. Yeah. yeah that's yeah. exactly. That's a beautiful way of putting yeah. it. And in, in ancient languages, certainly, for example, in, in the Bible, in the New Testament, uh, in Greek, there are two different words for time. Um, the one word is, is, is chronos, from which we get the word chronology, chronology yep. yeah, which is this sort of linear time. Yep. Uh, the other word which is used is kairos. Yes. And, um, kairos time is a different kind of time. Uh, kairos time, the best way to explain it is, is that moment of fullness, uh, that moment, that instant in which, you know, it is the time. Um, you know, for example, if, if, if a woman is pregnant and the baby decides, you know, I'm not waiting nine months. You know, that's, yeah, yeah. that's a gestation as, period. As babies do. I'm, now is the time, you know, Kairos time. So, so that's one way of, of, I think, thinking about time. We need to recognize that, um, our experience of time is not necessarily the reality of time. Now, there was a very smart philosopher. Uh, his name was Boethius. Yes. Um, who, who wrote about this. And, and he was a, you know, as many philosophers were at that time, um, uh, more of a sort of metaphysicist. They, they thought about reality in relation to God. So the existence of God wasn't questioned, certainly in the Middle Ages. But what Boethius said was, he said, well, you know, we have the kind of time that we live in and we're, we're stuck in our time. I mean, I, I can't move into the future. Um, I can live in the presence and I can remember the past, but, but that, uh, way of living in time is not the way in which the divine um, and other spiritual beings such as, as angels or, or demons or, 
you know, these spiritual beings would, would live in time. So one of the ways in which he explained it is he said, you know, if, if you were to take a blank piece of paper, lay it on a table and draw a line on that piece of paper, and you say, well, I'm born at this point and I'll die at that point. That's more or less my lifespan. I can measure that. It's a linear uh, progression of time. Yes. But the one who draws the line, in fact, the one who owns the paper and the pencil sees all of time from beginning to end happening all at once. Mm. So what Boothia said is most of us live in eternity. We move from point A to point B, yep. but God lives in what he called sempiternity. In other words, all time happens all at once. Yes. Now, there are certainly people who have taken up those notions. Um, I'm thinking, for example, about uh, people who believe in, in certain forms of quantum mechanics and quantum realities who would say something similar to what you said earlier, that this is just one trajectory of time. There are parallel contradicting, uh, layered uh, trajectories of time, yes. and that sometimes they intersect with one another. Could it then be that that we still need to be more informed about the uh, curious behaviors of time before we can make the uh, determination, therefore, that there are no giants? No, I mean, I think, look, so there, there are two things to say. I mean, the one thing that we, we have to, I think, recognize, Aubrey, is that the, the academic study, the intentional study, the pursuit, scientific pursuit of truth. Yes. Um, is, is not, it's not incontrovertible. In other words, it's not something that is, is static or normative for all time. There we're back to that concept again. Yeah. I mean, there are many things that we believed once upon a time that we've since come to discover with greater knowledge, more precise tools, uh, you know, clearer ways of handling data and complexity were either not true or were not entirely true. Um, I mean, for example, Galileo and Copernicus is an example of that, you know. Yes. Uh, yeah. the, the belief because of, you know, ancient myths and sacred texts that the earth is the center of the universe. And then, you know, this guy comes along uh, and says, hey, actually, you know, the earth, you know, revolves around this being, this this big uh, ball of gas called the sun, and they declared him a heretic. Well, later on, we come to learn, actually, scientifically, that's true. So my sense would be, you, we've, we've got to ask ourselves, on what basis do we hanker after the truth? And if it is after a kind of scientific truth, then we have to say, well, we then take what is most reasonable and defensible to be true until it is proven otherwise. Of course, we live with an openness that it could be partially true or untrue, but until it is proven otherwise, we accept it to be true. Let's take a call from Mariah in Ravonia. Hi, Mariah. Hi, Aubrey. Sorry to butt in all the time, but I'm I'm, I'm such. I <laughs> need you to butt in. I <laughs> need <laughs> you to butt in. Go ahead. Yeah. Um. So, Aubrey, I'm thinking of um other uh, uh, children's stories that I'm sort of familiar with. Um, Gulliver's Travels. That yes. is, you know, about giants and stuff like that, and also like you know, uh, Jack and the Beanstalk and the Friendly Giant and stuff like that. The other thing that occurred to me that has occurred to me is that um, I, I think more recently, or you know, in the recent past at least, we through better nutrition and stuff, we've sort of 
developed more as a human race. I mean, physically, you know, we now um, grow taller or whatever. Now we can also draw, you know, conclusions about people who don't, you know, who are not adequately um, eating, I mean, not eating properly and so forth. So back then, perhaps the human race was smaller. And therefore, anyone who was like, you know, taller than the norm would have been viewed as a giant. I don't know. I, this weekend, met somebody from Norway. And (laughs) I was sort of taken aback at how absolutely tall this person was. I'm not particularly Mm. small. But, um, you know, this person really was tall, you know, just on his, you know, on his bare foot, bare feet. So I wonder to what extent does that perhaps play a part in our perception of people as giants or non-giants? So if I understand you correctly, uh, Mariah, you are suggesting that we could be engaged in an exercise in relativism here, so, so something is not objectively giant; it is yeah. giant relative to whatever it is that is looking at it. So, even Aubrey, yeah. with his with his gigantic one point six five meters tall, um, is a giant yeah. under certain circumstances. That it's not necessarily an objective reality; it is a relative reality. Yes, is what I, you ask. I think, like, I know that um, certain, or a lot of the people in Portugal, for example, are, are fairly, you know, s- s- you know, they're not that tall, yeah. you, you, you know. And um, and a, a long-term friend of mine and I have this um, sort of joking conversation and he'll say, oh, I met this Portuguese um, girl, and you know what? She's so tall for a Portuguese. I mean, you know, saying that obviously as a joke, because the Portuguese, you know, kind of like, Perceived as rich to be small people, and indeed they are. And then you look at somebody Re- like relative relative to others, right? Exactly. Mm. Yeah. So I wonder, and yet I think we have developed as as a human race in terms of you know our physical stat, uh, uh, um, our physicalness. So I wonder, mm. you know, perhaps back then when people were talking about giants, we were relatively smaller. And we are now. Mm. I don't Interesting. know. Interesting. Mariah, well, thanks very I much. Sure, please, please, Prof. Yeah. Yeah, Mariah, I think I, I think Mariah's onto something here. So just to say at the moment, by the way, I'm, I'm actually in Amsterdam. And mm. um, one of the things about the Netherlands is that Dutch people are proportionally, exactly as you said, Aubrey, proportionally the tallest people in the world. And mm. I must say, I mean, I'm, I'm 1.8 uh, uh, meters, so that's six foot. And uh, I walk around here and I'm not so tall. <laughs> you know, yeah. Women and men are, are taller here. Yeah. So I think, I think that, that is true. The other interesting thing here, for example, is I can tell that Dutch people haven't always been this tall. It does have something to do with nutrition and genetics and whatever. Because, you know, when I visit these, you know, medieval uh, castles and old houses, you know, the doors are really low and you can... You can tell. I mean, I, I was in the in the Rakes Museum a week or two ago, and you see, you know, costumes, clothing that people wore. It's much smaller. Um, so, so that is one thing I think. There are there are clearly there would have been ethnic groups certainly in the ancient times when these stories were created that would have looked at other groups and said, "Wow, those people are much stronger, much faster, much much taller." 
But of course, there is also, Aubrey, this uh, thing called giantism, yes, um, which is a genetic sure. uh, disorder. I just quickly Googled here, Robert Wadlow uh, was 8 foot 11 inches. Yes, yes. Um, you know, that's, that's two... Uh, I'm 1.8. That's six foot. He was 2.72. That's unbelievably tall, you know. So it is possible that there might have been, you know, some people around who were extraordinarily uh, large, you know, uh, muscular, yeah. strong, yeah. Arnold Schwarzenegger-like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Here's, here's, here's the question, uh, Prof, and I, I, I appreciate the, the sort of postulations, the theorization and the logic that uh, is followed as we sort of come with some theories uh, that lead to a particular conclusion. Is it possible, however, to do exactly the same and have the same exercise that says, on the basis of the fact that almost every culture seems to speak of the literal objective existence of giants. That it seems to, and, and we in our current conversation are suggesting that perhaps there have been changes genetically to people due to, uh, to, to nutrition, due to, uh, due to greater exercise, due to whatever the reasons might be that have made people bigger or smaller. Uh, there's a lot of um, evidence that suggests that the, the Neanderthals were smaller in, in stature to the Homo sapiens. And the Homo sapiens sapiens were taller and, 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 and taller and stronger in relation to the Homo sapiens. Could it be, is it possible, that the same sort of type of thinking and logic and theorization could be true the other way around? Suggesting that there was, in fact, peoples that were objectively of a different subspecies of humanity that that existed not because of just relativity, that because Aubrey is uh, 1.65 meters tall, if he's standing next to the prof, the prof would obviously be a giant, right? But because that these are, are real giants, I ask hmm. this question because if I'm to accept that the idea of giants was a a symbolical sort of endeavor. Was David a symbolic endeavor? Did he actually actually exist in the Bible? Was he a real person, an objectively real person? If he was real, surely, surely then Goliath was real? Prof? Yeah, so that that's a you know that now we're really getting down to the nitty-gritty <laughs> of things. And and absolutely. So just to say that that's a, a very good line of inquiry and certainly in, um, you know, in the studying of, of ancient texts and their historical veracity, whether they can be historically uh, trusted, we have some methods to do so. Um, so, for example, one of the things that we would do to verify whether someone like David of, uh, you know, uh, 1 and 2 Samuel uh, in, in the Hebrew scriptures was a real person is we would look for extra biblical material. So we would look for, for other material written by sources other than those, uh, contained in the scriptures. Um, 
And certainly very often what we would do is we would try to ascertain from materials that were written by persons who weren't necessarily connected to a particular religion. I'll give you one example. Um, people often question, for example, was, was Jesus uh, a historical person? Mm. Now, in that instance, we can say, well, there are four gospels uh, that speak of him. Um, but, uh, you know, someone might say, well, of course, you know, those folks were building a Christian religion. So, of course, they would say that. Then one could say, okay, that's, that's perfectly good. But we do also know, for example, that, uh, the Roman historian Tacitus writes about Jesus and how problematic he was for the Romans and his crucifixion. We know that the, uh, the Jewish historian Josephus, for example, uh, writes about this religion, Christianity that was formed around this man who was crucified. By the Romans, so you begin to be able to sketch a historical uh, picture of of someone. Um, to come back to the discussion of giants, the fact that that there is this uh, trope, this this form of thinking in many ancient cultures, um, that is often accounted for, particularly in. There's a whole group of of persons who study this, called uh, they either call it mythical studies or law studies, L O R E, and what they tend to do is they tend to look at at other things uh, that often lead to these tropes. So, for example, Aubrey, one of the things that leads to to the construction of of shared myths, even by people who would never have encountered one yes, another, yes. is the the wiring of the human brain. You know, the ways in which we we think about ourselves and others. Mm. Uh, so, you know, what Immanuel Kant called the sort of a priori or pre-existing neural networks, that's one thing. Um, the very famous uh, neural, linguistics, uh, neural linguistics, uh professor Noam Chomsky, for example, showed that most existing languages fit into one of a few language stems because those are the only ways in which the human brain can process communication. Right. So... Out of that, we can begin to see that people begin to think about things like what we were talking about earlier, time and space yes. and height and uh, relative comparison of oneself to the other. So, you know, it's not, it's not improbable that giants existed, but there are, there are more scientific ways to explain the existence of those uh, myths and stories. I'd be interested to take your calls on this, 11 Yeah. Did giants exist? Uh, what do you make of the various f- arguments for and against? I'd be interested to hear why you believe they existed or they didn't exist. Uh, I know for sure that you've heard a story uh, in your youth or in your childhood that suggested that there was an existence of giants was that literal or was that simply symbolical was it a way by which um, people tried to explain that which is beyond the literal sort of experience of stuff and that we as humanity developed ways of conceptualizing things that are bigger than our physical experience in ways that are symbolical and if you get my meaning i'd be interested to take your calls on double one eight eight three oh seven oh two and of course uh, any other issues that you have 
encountered that are gigantic. Uh, was it literal? Was it symbolical? Maybe both. Interested to hear your thoughts about that. The number to dial is 011-883-0702 or 021-446-0567. So you're in the Netherlands at the moment, uh, Prof. And uh, and uh, the people of the Netherlands have now been adjudged to be the tallest people in the world generally. Is that because of things such as nutrition? Yeah, I, 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 I actually I haven't done too much uh, uh, research on 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 that, um, but I'm guessing that you know um, it would be nutrition. Uh, I'm guessing the fact that that um, people tend to spend a lot less time sitting. Uh, <laughs> you know, people cycle everywhere, walk everywhere. Uh, you know that that means that the, the muscles get stronger and the bones stretch and they perhaps eat a little bit more and it gets processed in different ways to those who like myself are a little more sedentary. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. So, so they, they tend to grow taller rather than wider, if I can put it that way. Yeah. Uh, so I'm guessing that that, that's, you know, that there's, there is something there. What's interesting, by the way, is when I was doing a little bit of research for, for this evening's uh, call, I came across a book written by Claudine Cohen. It's called The Fate of the Mammoth. Yeah. And uh, this seems to be the book that um, most persons who think about giants and giantology go to. And she, she sort of does this tracing of, of these giant myths. And, you know, what's interesting is that throughout history, uh, you know, people like Herodotus, um, St. Augustine, um, you know, even physicians in France in the 16th century, contemporary Americans, have all been fascinated by this topic and and made various interesting discoveries yeah. uh, in relation to extraordinary people, either in size uh, or in in the telling of their stories. Do we do we have any immutable existence of giants in other species? For example, the dinosaurs and the saurs. All these saurs, right? These tyrannosaurus, these big, big, big animals, were they mythical? Were they symbolical? So certainly, we know that that um, you know uh, dinosaurs uh, existed, and um, of course, the way in which we can tell that is because uh, you know we 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 have found uh, remains of of these creatures, and we can date them. So we know that, for example. Uh, the remains of of many uh, dinosaurs uh, were captured, you know, in lava flows or, uh, you know, in in peat pits, and then those became uh, crystallized, uh, carbonized. So, so we can certainly, and and you know, in the reconstruction of those. Um, I visited last year uh, the Natural History Museum in London, and yeah. as you go through the main entrance, there's that massive. Uh, dinosaur. I don't think it's a Tyrannosaurus rex. It's one of the other uh, larger dinosaurs. Yeah. It's quite impressive to see what they've done there uh, with with actual uh, bones. I, I think it's not the actual bones, but you know they've they've recreated bones that they've found and and built up that dinosaur. So we do know that that these extremely large creatures existed. But I wonder, Aubrey, whether the the ways in which we live, so population densities. 
um, climate change uh, globally could sustain creatures that large. Whales, for example, I would say are dino, you know, they're, they're the giants of the sea. Um, but we know whale species are under threat uh, because of changing ocean conditions. So, so I think it's also that kind of historical evolutionary change which causes these very large species to die out. I'll tell you what my obvious question then becomes, Prof. If we have giants of the land in the form of dinosaurs, these impressively large creatures who, for whatever biological climatic climatic reason, were unable to be supported by the resources of the earth. If we can show that we have giants of the sea, why is it that we would find ways of explaining away the idea of giants of the earth in the form of humanoids? Yeah, so now, <laughs> Aubrey, I'm glad we came to this point because, <laughs> because this was something I was thinking about this afternoon. Yeah. Who's to say we are not the giants of our age? Who's to say that we are not that? I mean, when, when the dinosaurs reached the peak of their size, uh, they were probably saying, I wonder if there's going to be something bigger than us or something bigger than us existed. Um, you know, I, I can certainly anticipate that with long-term evolutionary change that uh, the physical structure and appearance of Homo sapiens will change. You know, we, we, we need our strong legs less and our long arms less and we need bigger heads, you know, more. Yeah. So. I have a sense that there is a possibility that we might actually be the giants, be the giants. of our age. <laughs> it's possible. It's possible. It's very possible, uh, Prof. And uh, once again, I want to thank you for always uh, being such a sport and uh, agreeing to talk to me about these very, very interesting, weird and wonderful things. I find that when we engage in this kind of conversation, it does two things. It activates and rests the mind at the same time. Do you find that mm. to be true? Absolutely. I mean, Aubrey, like, like you, and I, I listen to your program, you know, all the time. I, I'm, I think I'm one of the most curious people alive. So I, fe I feel at my best when I'm asking these weird and wild questions and going on a, a, a hunt to find the answer. So absolutely. Prof, once again, thank you so much for joining.